while, my wife and I did some traveling, and then I came home and got uh, really sick. Uh, but it's good to be here today and to be upright and to be with you. We are, uh, we are in the Gospel of John, and we are going through this book passage by passage. And we're in a section that is sometimes called the Upper Room Discourse or uh, the Farewell Discourse is another way that it's put. Um, it's an extended amount of teaching that Jesus does with his disciples in the upper room, only recorded uh, most of this in the Gospel of John. This is week eight in the upper room discourse, and we've got another seven weeks to go just in this section from um, chapters 13 through 17. And it started, you might remember, back with Jesus washing the feet of the disciples and an amazing story that leads into him talking about his love for them. We have the betrayal that takes place in the upper room. He talks about uh, the fact that he will soon be leaving, which uh, creates a lot of questions on the part of the disciples. He speaks um, some words like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Um, I'm the true vine. And last week, Pastor Scott talked about Jesus' command for us to love one another. And today, we're going to transition from the topic of love to the topic of hate. It's a pretty big pivot, and we're going to dive into that. Let me pray for us, and, and we'll get started. Father God, I, I thank you so much for uh, the way that you love us and care for us and sustain us. Father, I also I just think this week of the fact that you've called us uh, to a mission. You have given us a purpose, and there will be pushback from other people when we seek to live out that purpose. And so I pray for us this morning as we look into your word that you will encourage our hearts, uh, that you will inform our faith, and that you will strengthen us, that we will go out from here having heard from you and having grown in our relationship with you. Only you can do this through your spirit, and so I pray this now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, uh, so... For over a year, uh, my wife and I and two really good friends of ours have been planning a trip to Israel, uh, something that has kind of been on my bucket list I've always wanted to do. And so we began to plan actually back in September of uh, last year for this trip. And we spent a lot of time thinking and praying and planning and kind of mapping everything out. We were going with National Geographic. We were very excited about that. And then October 7th came. Um, kind of just the, the terrible uh, situation in Israel, and immediately our trip was canceled. And so that was on a Saturday. And on a Sunday, we were all just kind of sad about all of that. And then Monday, a few people who were going on the trip were like, you know, we still want to go somewhere. Right? We, does everyone want to go somewhere? There's four of us, and we're like, yeah, we want to go somewhere. And so um, somebody else on the trip was like, here, let me work on that and see what I can come up with. And so he texted me uh, in the afternoon and said, hey, what do you think about going to Europe? Now, I, just Europe has never really been in my forethought, like going to Europe. Not, I have nothing against Europe. I just had never really thought about it. Israel was just so in front of my mind. And so we decided uh, we're going to go to Europe. And it was a pretty amazing trip. We were there for over a couple of weeks. Um, we got to, uh, we flew to Amsterdam and then went to Zurich. We got to go out on Lake Zurich and see the Alps, uh, which were absolutely amazing. It, unfortunately, pictures don't really do it justice. And by the way, I have thousands and thousands of pictures. I'm not going to bore you with them all, but at least not all at once. Um, we got to go out on Lake Zurich, see the Alps, and then we went up uh, into the Alps. It was, it was pretty amazing. Um, it was snowing. It was all pretty cool. We went to France and Germany. Um, you know, you, you kind of go through these small towns. Uh, I, if, you, if you look at the timestamps on my pictures, you know, the first couple of days, there's just hundreds and hundreds of, oh, look at this, look at these old houses. Oh, they're hundreds of years old on this river. And then you'd go into a, a church, into a cathedral, and you'd see these, these crazy stained glass windows and all this architecture. And I think I took like maybe 45 pictures of the first stained glass window. By day 14, I was like, oh, look at that window. Uh, you know, kind of thing. Um, you go to these, you can't, again, pictures just don't do it justice. Um, just the, the sheer size and the complexity and the detail on these buildings. It's pretty, pretty awe-inspiring. 
Um, we went to Worms and kind of did the Martin Luther Trail. And, you know, I have, so I have to admit, we'd go to some of these sites and they'd be like, you know, this was, you know, 300, 500, 1,200. Went to a wall that was over 2,000 years old. And I always did the same thing every time. Like when we went to, in Worms to Martin Luther, I, I remember just going, I just had to put my hand on the, on the stone, thinking about all the other believers and people uh, of faith who had come through and done that. Just some really uh, amazing sites. We went to Luxembourg to the uh, American Cemetery, which was just you know, kind of a pretty amazing if you read about it and think about it. Uh, went to Paris. We actually, this is on the 32nd floor of the hotel we were in, and uh, you could go out on this open terrace. And uh, this was a picture we took at night. We were really close to the Eiffel Tower. Um, we spent a couple days just walking through Paris. It was a pretty cool trip. Now, a lot of the trip we spent on a riverboat. So if you've ever been on a riverboat cruise, we were on the Rhine. Um, again, something that was just never like on my bucket list. And so we'd sail down and, you know, we have France and Germany and Switzerland and Luxembourg uh, to look at. So there's about 100 people on the boat. It's not like a big sea cruising vessel. It's pretty small. 100 people, 60 uh, staff on there to kind of take care of you. And so you, you get to know people, right? You, you get up in the morning, you have breakfast. Um, I don't know about you, like I'm like a, a little yogurt for breakfast and that's it. You go on this boat, there's like this humongous spread of food. I didn't even know people ate anything else for breakfast. It was amazing, like all sorts of stuff. And then, you know, sometimes we'd have lunch if we were on the boat because we'd be out on tours during the day. We'd come and have dinner together. We'd also have like a, there'd be a social hour where you could come and you'd see people when you're on the bus going to places. So, you know, we'd see a lot of the same people. You kind of get to know them. I'm terrible with names. So, um, I knew a lot of people just by sight. I didn't know their names. So, you'd, you'd have these discussions. So, if you're, a, I'm a bit of an introvert, and so like the idea of going on these trips and being around people all the time, you kind of, you come up with this strategy for conversations that you're going to have. So most conversations start this way. It, uh, um, how, so is this your first cruise? So this is our very first one. So it was always like, yes. And then people would be like, oh, that's so cute. This is our third. This is our fifth. This is our ninth cruise, right? And so I'd always like, uh, I would always try to deflect. So oh, t tell me about your cruises and where have you been? And all the people love to tell you about all that. And then you would always have the discussion, where do you live? So that's a big one, right? Where do you live? And you know, a lot of people were from the States, but a lot from the East Coast. And so, you know, they'd, oh, tell me about that and where you live. And I'm just still deflecting because um, I'm afraid of what's going to happen next. And then they'll tell me about your family, about your kids. But inevitably, the question always becomes, right, right, what do you, what do you do, right? Which, oh, I just like, I, I hate it because I always feel like whenever people ask me what I do, you know, people are like, oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a teacher. Oh, I'm a, you know, businessman. I'm a lawyer. I'm a politician. Those are all fine. When people find out you're a pastor, it's like lobbing a hand grenade into a conversation. You know what I mean? People get weird and they, they get quiet. Now, sometimes it's awesome. Sometimes people are like, oh, I'm a believer too. Or, you know, what we got a lot of was, I go to church, which we found out means a whole lot of, of different things. But sometimes there was just immediate, like, like, you know, curtains going down and people giving you, you know, kind of you know, sketchy glances and, you know, don't make any quick movements. And, you know, there's kind of, I'm always, I don't like it because I feel like there's a lot of judging that happens really quick without people really getting to know me. And sometimes there's even, I've had people just be like, you know what, can I tell you what I don't like about Christianity? And absolutely, that's why I came on this cruise, you know. <laughs> like, so a few days into the trip, it was, uh, it was cocktail hour, so I was drinking my ginger ale uh, that comes from a bottle. So it's a, a really interesting trip. They'll be like, what would you like to drink? Well, I'll have a ginger ale. Okay, and they'll, they'll come out and put a glass down and pour the ginger ale for you. You kind of swirl it. Yeah, I'll have some more of that, you know. I, they always said the hardest thing about this trip is when you come home and there's no one to pour your ginger ale for you. It's really tough. So there was one evening, I, I don't know, it was probably day four on the trip or something, and uh, we're, we're getting ready for, a, someone's going to talk about kind of what we're doing the next day. So everybody's in the lounge, and we're sitting, and there's kind of a conversational area, and there's uh, eight seats, and so Christy and I are there, good friends are there, and then there's two other couples that I think we had met somewhere along the line. So everyone's talking and just passing the time, and one of the ladies 
who is in our little circle, she leans over the, the table and she makes eye contact with me and she says, can I ask you a personal question? So it's kind of loud. Some guy's playing lounge music on the piano. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a yelling, whisper kind of thing. And instantly everybody around us gets quiet, you know, and they're, they're like listening. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I lean over. Sure. What, what, what do you have? And she says, well, she says, um, there's a, a, a rumor going around the boat. Um, everyone's talking about the fact they're, they're saying that you're a pastor. Like, she could hardly get out. Is that true? Are you a pastor? You know? So I was just joking. I just leaned over and I said, oh, is you know, that the rumor? Is that the word on the street? And very seriously, she said, yes, it is. Is that, is that true? Right? So it's, and everybody's trying to act like they're not listening, but they are listening, you know? And, and I always, so part of the issue there was that it really confirmed my suspicion that people are talking about me behind my back, you know? Uh, so if you're ever worried about that, it actually might be true. Um, but I'm, I, the reason I, that it kind of rubs me a little wrong is because I, I wish I could get to know people first and they could get to know me. Um, and then there actually was some really awkward conversations and, you know, some people were like, I go to church. I had, I had one guy at dinner say with a completely straight face, we were talking and he says, yeah, well, um, actually I know the real reason um, why we're here and how we got here and everything. He's like, aliens visited us. And he goes on to this whole thing. Yeah, and his wife looks at me and says, I have to sleep with this every night. Like just, you know, but it's, it's really weird stuff. And you know, you've probably experienced some of that as well. You don't just have to be a pastor, just be somebody who's living out your faith. And this is what Jesus is talking about in our passage here. He wants to talk about the prospect or the possibility that you or I will receive a little bit of hate because of our faith. And verse 18, which is where we begin today, says this, now, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So Jesus says if, and you know, he could have just as well said when. When this happens, he wants the disciples to know about the possibility that they will actually receive some hate mail because of their relationship with Christ. Now, if you have been following Jesus for any amount of time, you probably know on some level what I'm talking about. You have probably experienced this, even if you've only been a Christian for a couple of hours. I know if we had the time, you could stand up and tell about how some of you have been rejected because of your faith, maybe by family. Some of you, uh, it's happened at home. Um, maybe it's, you know, you've been rejected by your parents or some of you, I even know, uh, you've been rejected by a spouse because you came to Christ. Sometimes you receive verbal attacks. You know, maybe you've kind of stepped out there on social media and let your witness be told, and you've received a lot of pushback on that. Maybe uh, it's been the loss of an opportunity or a promotion or a job or a place on a team or in a group. Maybe there's tension at home. There's tension at work. Jesus says that this is going to happen to you if you know him, follow him, and, and if you're a witness. Now, a couple things we notice here. The first is this, that Jesus is saying that this hate is not new. Um, just kind of thinking about John, in John chapter 5, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. Um, in chapter 5, they tried to kill him because he made himself equal with God. In chapter 7, it says they were seeking to kill him. In chapter 10, they wanted to stone him. In chapter 11, they wanted to stone him. In chapter, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 10 and chapter 11, they plotted to kill him. And Jesus is just saying, you guys have seen this. There's, there's nothing new here, and you should expect this in your own lives as well. So first of all, he says this hate is nothing new. And secondly, he explains that this hate is primarily directed at, at him. The disciples will experience real hate and real persecution, but it's rooted in their affiliation with Jesus. And by the way, hate is not always violence. Not, not every godly Christian is, is constantly persecuted. And not all unbelievers hate Christians. The, the system always does but individuals may not. And persecution can take all sorts of forms, right? From people just treating us with indifference or writing us off or ignoring us to an animosity and tension. They may attack you with words. They may attack you with some form of abuse. Or they may physically attack you. They may do, they may do violence against you. Uh, there was an article in Forbes about a year and a half ago 
um, looking at the persecution of Christians. And again, you know, sometimes for us, we live in a very comfortable place in our world and, and how the amount of persecution that we s- receive sometimes is kind of consummate with, you know, how much we get our faith out there so we can kind of dial in our comfort level. But in a lot of parts of the world, that's just not the way it works. Let me read for you a little bit from this article. It says, during the reporting period between October 2019, so this is a few years ago, and September 2020, so over a year period, 309 million Christians, that's 309 million, were living in what they call uh, countries where they might suffer very high or extreme levels of persecution. Not talking about living in the United States. As Open Doors Ministry emphasizes, quote, that's one in eight worldwide. One in eight Christians worldwide. One in six in Africa, two out of five in Asia, and one in 12 in Latin America. Open Doors Research I- Uh, identified that during the reporting period, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. 4,488 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. 4,277 Christians were unjustly arrested, detained, or imprisoned. And 1,710 Christians were abducted for faith-related reasons. And those are just the, the ones that were reported that they know about. The part of the article that really hit me the most was about North Korea. North Korea ranks number one as the world's worst persecutor of Christians for the 20th consecutive year. Being a Christian in North Korea is a death sentence. If you're not killed for your faith, Christians are taken into labor camps as political criminals. North Korea is reported having expanded the system of prison camps in which an estimated, get this, 50 to 70,000 Christians are currently imprisoned. You know, I could think about was, if I would have been born in North Korea, and if Jesus had called me out of the world, this would be my life. And this is the life for tens of thousands of Christians. Jesus says if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He's just saying the disciples used to belong to the world. They embraced the culture. They embraced the values. They loved it. They supported it. And then Jesus came along, and he called them out of the world. He called them into his tribe and out of their tribe, if you will. And they they changed teams. And by God's grace, they repented of their sin, and they pursued righteousness, and they were now different people living differently, not living like the people who were around them. And often this is not a very, it's not popular with those who persist in their sinful lifestyle. And for maybe for some of you who became Christians a little later in life, you, you experience that, right? God called you out of the world, you began to live differently, and people around you who, who didn't come to Christ, they didn't like that. Right? They didn't, and we find this when a believer turns from their sin, sometimes those who remain in their sin, they don't like that. They, they feel like they're being judged, they get a little defensive, they say things like, you're not any fun anymore, you ever hear that? You used to be fun, and now you're not very fun anymore, and, and sometimes they just deal with it by rejecting you, or abusing you, or, or hating you. And so Jesus says the rub here is that these, these disciples, they no longer belong to the world, but they still live in the world. See, that's the thing. When you become a Christian, God doesn't just automatically take you off the earth and into heaven and into his kingdom that way, right? You're still here, but now you don't belong here. Now you're not a a citizen of the world. You're an outsider. You're an alien, and the thing is people pick up on that, right? They, they, They notice that about you. In verse 20, he says this, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Right? They will. They will do this. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, Jesus says, because they do not know him who sent me. Back in 1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed at the end of World War in 1945 in a German concentration camp had prophetically written years earlier the book The Cost of Discipleship. And I know that many of you have have read that. It's a hard read, you know, you kind of got to be in the right mood. Here's Here's a quote from that book. He says, suffering is the badge of the true Christian. Think about that for a minute. 
The disciple's not above his master. Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. Or as another writer put it, and this is pretty convicting, such persecution will be proportionate to the extent of one's identification with Christ. In 2 Timothy, it says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, what? Persecuted. Jesus goes on to say, why? He says, it's because they do not know him who sent me. The, the reason people opposed Jesus, and he said this again and again and again, was because they don't know the Father. And because they don't know the Father, they don't recognize the Son. So they, they rejected Jesus. And again, Jesus is the full revelation of God in the flesh. And it's why they reject those who follow Christ, because they don't know the Father. Jesus was this bright light that revealed both what the goodness of God looks like, and it was different than what they imagined, what the, what the righteousness of God looks like, what, what real love looks like. But remember, the spotlight of Christ worked both ways. It didn't only spotlight the glory of God, it also had a way of exposing sin in the world for what it was. Right? That's the deal when you flip on a light in a room, you don't, you don't just see certain things, you see everything is lit up in that room. And, and people who were living in sin didn't like it. They didn't like their sin being brought out into the daylight. Edward Clink in his commentary says this, sin perverts what is true and good. It reverses the standards and the measurements, proclaiming evil things to be good and good things to be evil. Jesus exposes our enlightened world for what it really is, enslaved to its own sin and blind to what is good and true. It just sounds so much like our world today, doesn't it? But the good news begins, and this is the hard part, with the bad news. Right? It begins with the bad news. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And some people, they hated Jesus for that. And if you live for him, they'll hate you for that as well. Now, with that being said, as we talk about persecution, let me just mention a couple principles to keep in mind. First is this. this a lack of persecution isn't necessarily a sign of God's approval. Right? So the absence of persecution may actually indicate that something is wrong in your life. And sometimes I think we kind of go through life, right, when hard things happen to us, we're like, well, God, why is this happening to me? And, and why is life so hard and why are people rejecting me when in fact that may be exactly where you need to be? What I find sometimes is that we, we try to fit somewhere between living in an extremely godly life and an extremely sinful life, right? We don't really want to do, we're not going to do that. We don't want to just live completely sinful. That doesn't make sense. But many of us don't really want to live a really, really godly life because we don't want to stand out that much. And so we end up trying to find this, this smooth uh, sea, if you will, as opposed to being really possessed by God. And we may go through life with very little pushback on our faith because there's very little faith to push back on. On the other hand, persecution isn't necessarily a sign of God's approval. Not everybody is persecuted because they're a godly Christian. In Proverbs 16, 7, though, it says this, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies at peace with him. Proverbs isn't saying that we'll never face difficulties if we're godly people. He's just saying that when we live by faith, it can bring peace where normally there would be conflict. Not every unbeliever will attack you for your faith. Some, in fact, might even support you for your faith. Some may embrace and get behind some of the things that, that we stand for as, as a church and as believers. Like, think of Run for the Hungry. There were probably a lot of people at Run for the Hungry on Thanksgiving Day that they love what we're doing as a church when it comes to feeding people. Uh, they don't necessarily believe in the deity of Christ or the inerrancy of Scripture or the exclusive gospel that we preach, right? But sometimes we're persecuted not because of our faith, but because of our sin, because of our stupidity. Sometimes we're persecuted because we're just a jerk, right? Sometimes persecution is not necessarily a sign that we're following Christ, but that we're, we're off point. Tim Keller puts it this way, he says, though the gospel is unavoidably offensive, we must work hard to make sure people are offended by the gospel itself rather than our personal, cultural, and political opinions. Get that? 
I think this is really good advice for us as we are headed into a, an election year. Remember the last election year? <laughs> that was really fun. And I think that a lot of times, part of the reason there was so much turmoil wasn't because we were getting the gospel out there, it's because we were pushing our opinions out there. As a follower of Jesus, we don't, we don't avoid persecution nor do we seek it, right? That's not our, that's not our goal. We follow Christ. We follow him and, and we live according to his words and whatever comes, comes. Jesus says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So certainly he says, you know, some people will reject you because they reject me. But Jesus says, some people will receive my word and because of that, they will receive you. And, and the good news is, Jesus says, as we get out there and yes, there's a potential for rejection, there's a potential for hate, but there's also the potential that people will respond to the gospel as you take it out and live it out in the world around you. But ultimately, we're reminded they are responding to Jesus, which brings us to our second point in the passage, and that is what I call an, an irrational hate. What, what happens here is it's illogical. It's, it's irrational. I want to show you that. In verse 22 and verse 24, he says this. Now, if I had not come and spoken to them, that's the generation that Jesus is, we, we have to think context here. He's talking about the people who were living while he was living on the earth and people that he preached the gospel to. They would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they've seen and hated both me and my father. So Jesus is not speaking of sin in general, but something very specific. So let's look at that. He says, if I had not come and spoken, they would not be guilty of sin. Jesus is not saying that all these people were innocent of sin until he came and preached to them. In fact, it's interesting, there was a movement among Christians a while back that that's how they understood the passage. So they would say, people are innocent until they hear the gospel, so let's not go send missionaries, right? Because if we send them, then people might be guilty. In fact, that's not at all what Jesus is saying here. Remember, Jesus came as a savior, all right, in a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas, and the message is, unto you has been born a Savior, because you are already dead in your sins. You already need one to rescue you. Sin doesn't become an issue with the arrival of Jesus, but rather, sin becomes most apparent at his arrival. It becomes apparent, more exposed in a unique way that had never happened before. That generation saw God in the flesh that generation heard God speak words regarding sin and salvation. They saw God in the flesh live a perfect life, revealing God's glory, and many people rejected him anyway. These people were uniquely guilty because they had seen and heard the ultimate revelation of God. And that's why Jesus says, now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus has the ultimate revelation of God, right? He's just saying this. If a person rejects Jesus in that generation who had seen him, right, there's no excuse for them. They can't blame society or blame their parents or blame the church or say, I didn't have enough proof. Jesus works. His miraculous signs, his teaching revealed God's righteousness and his beautiful perfection, and it revealed and contrasted that to sin. And Jesus did among them what no one else had yet done. And yet, they would not believe. And a rejection of Jesus' words and his works in that generation is a rejection of the clearest light, of the fullest revelation of God. And therefore, it incurs, as one writer said, the most central, deep-stained guilt. He goes on in verse 25 and says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. I, I love this verse. He's quoting from Psalm 35 and Psalm 69. Those are Psalms of, of David. It's, it's David when he was facing uh, persecution and false accusation, and he's suffering because of that. But the contrast is powerful. Right? Even though David may have been um, falsely accused, David was by no means a man without sin. David had committed horrendous sins of the kind, you know, that 
many of us have never uh, done. And, and yet, what he's saying here is we contrast this with Jesus who had lived a perfect life, right? In every single way. And so there was no justification whatsoever for rejecting Jesus. This is what he says. When he says they rejected me without cause, I think of it this way. He's saying without any good reason at all. They had no reason to reject him. In fact, instead of hating Jesus for shining a light on their sin, they should have thanked him. They should have worshipped him for opening their eyes to their reality, for making a change possible in their life, for loving them so much that he would come to them and live among them and teach them and give them miraculous proof, right? It's just illogical that he would come and, and expose their sin and they would do anything other than humble themselves. They should have thanked him, but that's so often the way it is. The proof can be right in front of us and we just, we will not accept it for what it is. But we can all, we can all be like that. I was kind of reminded of this in, a, in another way. So when uh, we got back from our trip in Europe, uh, the day afterwards, kind of dealing with jet lag and so I, well, I wasn't feeling really good that day, uh, but I just figured it was jet lag. And the next day, it became apparent I just had really come down with something. And I don't, and I was just thanking God I wasn't sick on the trip, but I could have, I could have caught something on the plane or the boat or wherever it was. And then the next day, I'm feeling worse. And my wife keeps saying, you know, you got to call the doctor. You had to test for COVID. And I'm like, no, I haven't. I mean, I, I've literally taken a COVID test over 100 times. Uh, because every time I go to the hospital to visit someone during COVID or, or be with people, and I had so many times where you know, I would be with somebody counseling, and then the next day they'd call and say, oh, turns out I had COVID when I was breathing all over you that whole time. So I would take tests, and I never had COVID. never had it. And I thought, I don't have COVID. I Anyways, I woke up a few days later, I'm so learner, and I thought, you know, I probably should take a test and just see. I know I don't have it, but I was, I was really, really sick by this point. Uh, I could barely drag myself out of bed, so I thought, well, yeah, okay, so, you know, I ripped open the passage, package, you, right, you know how this works, and you, you get the little test strip out and get that ready, and then, you know, you cut off the tip to the fluid, and you put it in the thing, and dropper, and you put that on, and then you... Yeah. You do that thing right, you do that thing. So I like did it all, I've done it so many times. And, and then I put the drops in and I set the timer for 15 minutes and I turn around for a minute to look at something. And when I look back, like 30 seconds later, there were two really bright red lines, like neon lines. And I thought, well, that can't be right. It's been like 30 seconds, it's not right. So I'm, I'm gonna retest, I don't believe it. And so I, I ripped open another test and I just pulled out the little test strip, that's all. And I took the same liquid and I put it in there and boom, bright red lines again, right? I'm like, nah, they, I don't believe it. There's something, I, you know, I shouldn't have used the same stuff twice. Probably, probably didn't knew it right, so I got a third test. And I opened that test and I did the whole thing and I did the drops and now this time it was kind of going really slow and I thought, well, who knows, maybe not. And then they were both red. And then I realized, I looked and I'm like, so if you've done the test, you know, you're supposed to have the fluid between the two lines. And I'm like, there wasn't enough fluid in there. That's what it was. And so I opened up a fourth test and I took the fluid out of that and put some extra fluid in and combined two tests and did that. So there's plenty of fluid, bright red, had, you know. So I, I, I texted my wife who's at work and I said, you know, I don't know, I might have COVID. I'm not really sure, you know. And she's like, oh man, you know. So, I, so she comes home and she's doing great. She has no symptoms, no nothing. And the next morning, um, she gets up and she thinks, you know what, I'm going to school. I should probably take a test. She comes in the bedroom and she's like, I have COVID. She has no symptoms at all, right? No symptoms. And I'm like, there's, that, that's not right, right? There's not. So I'm like, oh, I remember reading something about tests expiring. So I go in the cabinet. We have 800 tests, and they're all expired. Every one of them. I'm like, that's it, honey. The tests are expired. So she's like, oh. And I'm like, can you go down to the store and get some more? So she goes down to the store. She brings them back. We open them up. It's like the eighth test. Do the droppers. Immediately red. I have COVID, I guess. I don't know. But so thing is, I'm just saying that because sometimes we just refuse to accept the facts, right? We just don't want to accept it. When it comes to sin, we can be even more like that, right? Like the, all the evidence is there. Our sin has been exposed. We see what it's producing in our lives, and we just won't believe it. 
I'll take another test. I'll take another. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. The Bible says this. The Bible says that. It's illogical when our sin is exposed that we would be anything more than grateful. That we'd be anything more, anything more than thankful. And that, that we would be humble and repentant and, and grateful that the Lord would expose that to us instead of going, well, that can't be right. Well, that's got to be wrong. That's got to be outdated. Let me ask you a question. When your sin is exposed, when somebody comes up and says, hey, I notice this about you, when you're listening to a sermon and God convicts you about some sin, what kind of person are you? Are you the one who looks at the test and goes, nah, it can't be right? Are you the person who humbly accepts it? Which kind of person are you? Now, if I can just kind of take a little excursus for a minute. As I was working on this sermon, I was thinking a lot about evangelism. Because there are really some implications for us as believers when it comes to evangelism and what we're talking about here with the whole idea of rejection and hate. And, and it made me think there's this, uh, there's this network of churches called the Irresistible Church Network. Maybe you've heard of it, the ICN. And the Ir- Irresistible Church Network, and I, by the way, let me just say this. I, I'm not picking on anyone. You can go on the internet and all of this stuff is plastered everywhere. There's nothing I'm you know, giving to you in secret or anything. It was, it was the whole network was started by a guy named Andy Stanley, um, the son of Charles Stanley. And I, let me just say this, like Andy Stanley is, a, is an amazing communicator, better communicator than I will ever be. Um, but at the same time, So this is the goal of the Irresistible Church Network, to build churches that make Jesus irresistible to believers, uh, to unbelievers, to make him irresistible to unbelievers. And and the whole idea is this, if we love unbelievers enough and if we serve them enough and if we plan our services around what what they like and adopt their musical style and their teaching preferences and the coffee they like, then we will make Jesus irresistible. He will be irresistible. They will have to come to faith. Uh, their motto is found on their website. It says this, people who are nothing like Jesus like Jesus, and he liked them back. And every community should have a, a church like that. Now, I absolutely do not disagree with the sentiment. I, I agree that we should absolutely reflect Jesus to the world. And I would say that there are times when people will say, it's not really Jesus I have a problem with, it's Christians right? It's the people I know and how judgy they are and all that stuff. Now, in the end, that's all still an excuse, but I would agree that as a church, our priority should be to reflect Jesus to the world around us. But in the Irresistible Church Network, they'll say things like this, that the reason many people don't believe in Jesus isn't because of Jesus. It's because of his followers who are religious and judgy and proud and selfish and unloving. And by the way, we should be none of those things, But Andy Stanley says this on the website, the problem is that the church is filled with people who are nothing like Jesus. But if unbelievers today could meet Jesus, they would like him. This is where, you know, while I can say I I, I agree with a lot of the sentiment, this is where I think we go extremely sideways and have to literally ignore the Bible. When we say something like that, if unbelievers today could meet Jesus, they would like him. Would they? Trevin Wax, in his book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, puts it well. When we say we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we must remember what happened to the hands and feet of Jesus. I mean, some people worshipped him, but some people nailed him to a cross. And if you follow Jesus, Jesus just says, you can expect the same. Which brings us to our, our last point, which is really kind of a bridge towards next week, and that is the power to defy, to defy hate. In verse 26, Jesus says, but when the helper comes, who I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus has just told the disciples he's leaving them. He's leaving, and a whole world of trouble is coming. How would you feel if you were in that upper room, and you had been with Jesus for three years, and now he's like, by the way, I'm checking out, I'm going to be gone, and you guys have a whole world of trouble coming. There's a lot of hate coming your way. How will they, how will they do that? How will they face persecution? How will they carry out the ministry that he's given them? Jesus says, I'm sending you a, a helper, a parakletos in the Greek. We get the word paraclete, which you may be familiar with. It's the idea of a counselor, a consoler, an advocate, a comforter, an intercessor. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit, 
who is all of these things, the third person of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one in essence and yet three different beings, three people. It's difficult. We're going to talk a lot about that in the weeks to come. Edward Klink in his commentary says this, the Spirit is often discussed in regard to the support and empowerment that he gives to Christians. And this is right and good and should continue to be taught. But this passage reminds us that the Spirit is not merely to be thought of in a utilitarian manner. For he is an independent and foundational witness and worker in his own right. Just as the Father is an independent witness of the Son, and we've, we've seen that where the Father has given witness to Christ as the Son, in the same way the Spirit is an independent witness to the Son. And the Spirit is God's presence in the world and the, the power of God's work in the world. And we'll see in the weeks to come um, some more details about that. But he will witness about Christ and he will witness about Christ through the disciples, but it is the Spirit's witness, even as the Father independently testifies about Christ. And we'll, we'll talk more about the Spirit next week, but notice what he says, you will also bear witness. So he's telling the disciples, the Spirit will bear witness, and, and you will bear witness. And so Jesus is appointing the disciples with a mission. He says, you're going to be witnesses of what you've seen and, and what you've heard. And so the progression looks something like this. Jesus comes to earth as God in the flesh. Again, a couple weeks we'll look at some more details of that. And he begins this for a unique work in, in redemptive history of God being on this earth in a very unique way. And then he's going to leave and the Spirit is going to come and carry on this work. And, and the Spirit will also do that work through believers who kind of become the final link in the chain of witnesses. That's you and me, but it is the Spirit who enables us to do this work. Jesus tells them, people will oppose you, but you will not be alone in this, right? God is going to send a helper who will testify about Jesus, even through our words and our testimony. We can't bring anyone to faith. You will never, ever do that. The good news is, it's not up to you. It's the work of God. It's a work of the Spirit. But here's the thing. God loves to do that work through those who will speak the gospel, who will live out the gospel in the world around them. But again, it's not our work. It's the work of the Spirit. We are not alone as we proclaim the gospel. And that means we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to be afraid that everyone on the boat is talking about us as Christians. That's okay, right? That opens up opportunities for conversations. The Spirit is with us, so we should let that inform our trust and, and our faith and our boldness and, and also our focus in what we talk about with people. And in fact, the Spirit is so vital to Christian witness that Jesus is going to tell them in Luke 24 to, to stay in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere yet until the Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit's primary ministry in the world today is to testify about Jesus. And that happens to be our primary mission as well. I mean, when you think about your life, like when you think about what is your purpose in the world, what would that be? Jesus says there's nothing more important than the mission that he has given to us to be witnesses in the world. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's pretty focused. We need to be careful. In the midst of all our reaching out, to the world around us with the love of God through befriending and feeding and activism and all of that stuff is important and we should be doing all that stuff but we must never forget that in all of that we must proclaim the gospel. We must tell people about Jesus. We must make it clear that we are sinners. That we stand in, in danger of judgment but that God has sent a savior for us. And if we will place our faith in Christ and Christ alone, we can be saved. We can have our sins forgiven. We can become children of God, but we must make that message clear. I love again what Tim Keller says this. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Amen? So we're going to continue this discussion next week, but I thought it would be good for us to close this morning by taking communion together because communion reminds us 
of how we got to this place. So I'm going to invite uh, our deacons. They're going to get up at this moment, and they're going to grab the, the communion plates. And if you have a, a faith relationship with Christ, I want to invite you, as the plates come around, to go ahead and grab a, a, a wafer and to grab a cup and hold on to that. And I want to talk, just set this up for a minute for us. I, because I think all this talk about sharing the gospel and uh, the pushback that we might get and making sure that we're living out our faith in front of people, it can start to feel like this is, this is like this onerous thing that God puts on us, this heavy work that we have to do if God's going to be happy with us. It can start to feel like that's what witnessing is. And, and what he reminds us here is that, no, this is, this is a work of God that he invites us into, right? He doesn't need us to share the gospel, but he wants to use us to share the gospel. So guys, you can come forward at this time and hand out the elements, so grab onto those. But the point is this, communion reminds us that it's all about Christ. Right? He is the one who came for us. He is the one who died for us. He is the one who rose for us. And as we, we take communion this morning, we're reminded of that in a, in a very visceral way, right? As we, we hold on to that wafer that reminds us of the body of Christ that Jesus came in the flesh, that he didn't just love us from afar. He came down and he lived in a body like ours and as we hold the cup and we remember the, the blood of Christ that was shed for us. He's the one who makes all of this possible. But communion reminds us why we can even have a conversation like this. Communion reminds us of how we got to this place. How did we get saved? How did we come to faith? How do we become a family of God? How do we come to a place in our hearts where we, we, we decided to come to church this morning? We decided to give up part of our Sunday, part of our weekend to be with other believers. How do we get to this point where we would give of ourselves back to the gospel where we'd have our kids come up here and sing to us about the gospel? And we would, right, we would read a passage that's a little hard and we would be encouraged in that. What has brought us to this place? It's Jesus. And it's important for us to remember that. And that's what communion does. It reminds us how we got to this place. We were saved by the grace of God and grace alone, not by works, not by being good enough. And I always like to say this, not only were we saved by grace, but we stay saved by grace, not by works. So again, being a witness is not about this thing we have to do to earn God's approval. Being a witness is something we get to do because we have received God's approval through Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is, Paul is talking to the church and he reminds them about communion. I'm just going to read this for you and then in a few minutes we'll, we'll take the elements. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus Paul says to the church, remember, right, when you have that, that wafer, that God loved us near, not from afar. Emmanuel is God with us. And he reminds us that God has loved us so much that he came near. He gave his body. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the, is the new covenant in my blood. <clears throat> Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he says this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, and I love this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because he's coming back. And we will forever be with the Lord. And so this time we have on earth is a very unique, short time. It's short, in which we get to be a witness for Christ. It's unique, it's short, it's a gift. And communion reminds us of this gift that God has given to us. So communion kind of becomes for us this both very solemn and joyous thing, doesn't it? It's both very solemn because we remember that Jesus gave both his body and his blood. He was crucified on that cross for us. So we, we take it very circumspectly. Right? We, we, 
we're, we're quick to confess our sin. We're, we're, we're quick to receive the cleansing that God offers us. And we also do it with great joy because Christ is coming back again. He's coming back. And we'll look back on this time as something that was very short, but something that was very sweet. God offered us it. It's, it's always... We often feel the pressure in this life to be a witness and deliver Christ and we worry about what, you know, what might happen to us, but we will look back and realize it was all just a gift of God and it was so short and the opportunities were so great. So I'm going I'm to pray for us and then I, I'm going to give you a moment to pray and talk to the Lord. When you're ready, you can take the bread and you can take the cup. Pastor Scott will come up and lead us in a song as we close together. Let me, let me pray for us. Father God, we, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had this morning to look at a, a passage that maybe, uh, maybe doesn't feel that great to us, reminds us of some of the things that we were afraid of, and yet we are reminded that you have invited us in to a great, great work. We get to tell people how they can be saved. We get to share your love and your care and your concern for them, both through our words and the way that we live. And this time is short because Jesus is coming back and the bread and the cup remind us of that. And so fathers, we take these these communion elements this morning as we remember the body of Christ as we're reminded of the blood of Christ that we would do it both solemnly with great reverence and that we would do it with great joy because we have a Savior who's both died for us and rose for us and ascended for us and saves all who will believe and he's coming back And so we look forward to that day. But for now, Father, be with us as we remember the body and the blood of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.